Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 446. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 446 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated recording engineer and mixer Andrew O'Dell, who is the owner of Ghost Hit Recording. We're going to talk all about his journey with not only his career, but also with Ghost Hit and talk about the ups and the downs of running a recording studio. Looking forward to having you hear that. Andrew O'Dell, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about my new machine. I know this is me sounding like a little kid, so you'll have to excuse me, but I got a new M2 Max 14-inch MacBook Pro. It is to replace the aging 2017 MacBook Pro that I've talked about on the show off and on for probably a couple years. And it's great. What can I say? It's a beast. 96 gigs of RAM, four terabyte hard drive, M2 Max, 38 core, 38 core on the video front. I can't. I think it's like 12 cores on the uh, the regular CPU front. Doesn't really matter. It's it's a monster. Fans don't come on. It's pretty amazing. So let me tell you a little bit about some observations in the process of getting it fired up. So many of you, I think, would be tempted to use the migration assistant or a time machine backup to get a machine like this up and running quick from an old machine. The fact of the matter is, is I was coming from an Intel machine from 2017, and not only is it a different architecture, but a lot of that software has newer versions out that are more uh, geared towards working with the M2. So I opted to just do fresh installs on everything. And I had been consulting with my friends over in the Dolby Atmos Mixers Network, in particular, Dave Fredman, former WCA guest Dave Fredman and I were texting and I was asking him some questions, you know, like, hey, what about preference files? Is there a trick that you use to bring over particular preferences? And and he essentially just said, no, man, look, it's like a new thing. And for him, he likes to reevaluate and analyze why he does the things he's doing. And to him, it's like fresh start is the name of the game. And as he said, normal the board, pull the patch bay kind of concept. And that, you know, that just really fired me up. So I thought, all right. I'm going to just do it all fresh, exactly like that. There's a couple preference files I had to bring over uh, for uh, sound ID reference from Sonarworks, of course. My uh, profile of my stereo setup in here I have stored, so I wanted to bring that over so I didn't have to recalibrate that. But here's some observations for you, some things I noticed. I made a spreadsheet of everything I needed to bring over and links to everything. I moved pretty quick and just knocked, you know, knocked it all out, one piece of software at a time. There's still a couple outliers, but that's okay. For the most part, Logic and Pro Tools are totally running and all the plugins are running. There's some plugin manufacturers that maybe you bought a plugin from them and they used a system of selling you that plugin that essentially would send you an email with the link to download. And that download eventually would expire. And that's one way of doing it. That I found that to be a challenge. And fortunately, in spite of it being the weekend, the people I reached out to were able to get back to me and give me new links, which was great. But it's it's a little bit of a hassle, you know. I mean, it's 
you know, first world problems, right? I'm not going to complain too much, but it is an observation I had as opposed to companies that have uh, product management software where you download like a primary piece of software and it's got all of your purchases and you can uh, authorize those plugins on on the machine. So that that was pretty simple. And then there's the the few plugin companies that just you log into, go to my account, you know, you find the download and you find the auth number, whatever it is. Obviously anything on an iLock, you just go download like, you know, like DSP, right? Colin's got it dialed in. You download all your plugins and I've got all my authorizations on my iLock. So that that totally works. So that was an observation. Another observation, I have, I've talked about Synology. Uh, I do have a Synology NAS, but I also have a NAS that sits in our living room. It's made by Drobo. Had a little trouble with Drobo in the past with one machine, got rid of that. And now I have this machine. It's an older machine, but you know, it's loaded up. It's got like, you know, 15 terabytes of storage space in it and redundancy and it's pretty cool unfortunately the drobo company is not um providing service or support anymore i'm not really sure if they're bankrupt or if they're going out of business but the website's up and you can download drivers but you're not going to get any support for anything new so i was able to squeak in and get mine to work, which is great because I I really enjoy having it as like another storage space. It's another level of redundancy. But bear in mind, if you run into Drobo products from here forward, you may have a problem. You may have a a migration forward problem. And I'm gonna have that problem here at some point in the future. So at some point I will get rid of the Drobo, but for now it stays, I'm looking at it on the desktop. So it's, it's functioning. Yeah, spreadsheet. If you're going to migrate and you're going to do a fresh start, just go through your old machine, go through all the software, copy paste those names, get those links. And uh, that way you have kind of a hit list, so to speak, uh, a checklist that you can go through when you do a migration and, and a fresh start. Dante Virtual Soundcard from Audinate, which I use in my Atmos setup, that was an interesting thing. So when you buy that software, you can buy a single license that is tied to a particular machine. And if you want to make it, make it transferable, you have to spend a little more money. So I had to spend uh, 30 bucks to make one of the, one of the two licenses I have transferable and revoke it from the machine, which is another MacBook Pro. I've got an older one, revoke it from there and move it to the new one. That was a bit of a conundrum to figure out, but I figured it out. Totally works. And Everything's working there, which is great. A lot of security going on in Ventura, which is the operating system my machine shipped with. A lot of, um, you know, having to say okay to a lot of stuff like, you know, this piece of software wants access to your microphone or your hard drive or whatever, and you've got to go through. I'll tell you, probably the biggest and strangest thing I I encountered, and this is no slight on them, but, you know, it was a little strange, I got to admit. I found it peculiar that uh, I had to power up into a security mode and uh, move the machine into a, uh, what would you say, a reduced security feature, I guess, or a more uh, less restricted. And you do that and then you restart and then, then it'll clear and it'll allow the Apollo to attach, which is... I thought that was really strange, but that's okay. I'm, I'm going to give them a pass because I know that that will probably get solved in the future because, you know, a company like that is 
got a lot on its plate to juggle. Every time Apple makes a move, all these companies also have to make a move. So I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that they can uh, navigate that in the future. So so I got my Apollo up and running. Uh, obviously, my Grace uh, monitor controller, that that's connected very easily. Yeah, it's nice to be back on a machine that's got a magnetic, magnetically detachable power supply, an SD card reader, uh, an HDMI port, and I'm running two extra monitors attached to this MacBook Pro. And it's all working really great. It's nice to be able to open a session that I know is full of CPU hogging plugins that where I don't have to freeze the tracks because that's what I was doing. And the other thing too, I, probably the number one bonus out of all of this is the Mac is not over to my side, you know, breathing heavy like a dog who's been on a on a long walk on a hot summer's day, right? Or a person for that matter. It's just cool as a cucumber. It's just over here doing its thing. New machine is great, loving it. If you're thinking about upgrading, I, I would encourage you. I went all out on side, you know, RAM. I maxed the RAM out. I didn't max the hard drive size out. I could have got an eight terabyte hard drive, but I figured, okay, come on. You don't want to spend too much, but I already spent a lot. So it's a machine that I know I'm going to have at least for another, you know, seven to 10 years. Easy, unless some gargantuan change in what we do happens and I've got to get a different machine. But this machine is a monster. And for pro audio, it's, it's just incredible. Uh, spent a little time in Adobe Lightroom using it because I take photos. Um, in fact, I have a, if you want to check some of the photos out that I do, I have an Instagram page for that. It's a uh, Matt Stops Time, I think it's called. Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes. You can check that out. I, I just post bits and pieces of photos that I take. And uh, it'll be nice to have a machine that can really power through some Lightroom stuff, which is awesome. Well, that's it. I have talked your arm off. I'm so sorry. Let's get to this interview because I think that's going to be far more interesting than my rant. But uh, all in all, love the new machine. So that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. 
And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Andrew O'Dell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Great to have you here. You're talking to us from West Springfield, not to be confused with just Springfield, West Springfield, Mass. And you're talking to us from your studio, Ghost Hit. Mm -hmm. As usual, we'll get to the studio and all that comes with that. So let's just jump into the past, as I like to do. Where did you grow up? And tell me about that upbringing. Yeah, man, absolutely. I grew up just outside of Amherst, Massachusetts. So we're in the western part of the state. And you've interviewed a few other amazing people from our area. So I'm very proud to be included in that group. I grew up out here in western Massachusetts and moved away for a while and then came home. And I just want to say, before we get started, more that I'm hoping you and your listeners can forgive me a little bit if I go astray. I, we have a four-week-old at home, so I'm playing the sleep deprivation game here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this will be great. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then on top of that, I just wanted to tell you that I'm a bit starstruck because Working Class Audio is a, a huge piece of my life and was a big piece of how I got started since I started listening in 2016. So wow, it's a, it's wow, a big you're gonna deal make me to me blush. to be here. Yeah, I know, I know. Just to make you and everyone who's listening feel extra weird. I just Yeah, to extra say that. weird and old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. But there are two things that I just want to tell you, and then I'll, I'll tell you all about how I got started, because I know we start there. But there are two things that I think of all the time when I think of the podcast. One is your interview with Jim Scott, mm. where- Wow, that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. I've listened to it many times. It's a great interview, but- the big takeaway for me is when he says something like, why would anyone want to hire an old guy with a Neve console anymore? And he says, whenever I feel bad about that, I have a couple cocktails and go out in the backyard and cut down a couple of trees and then I feel better. And <laughs> I just love that. I think about that anytime I feel insecure about what I'm doing or feel like I'm in doubt of myself, I think of Jim Scott and just put a little humor into it, put a little levity into it and know that it'll pass. And then the other thing I wanted to tell you is that in 2016, when I started listening to the podcast, I think I listened to your interview with John Vanderslice like 8 million times. It was my primer for starting a recording studio. And I emailed you at that time and said, hey, you know, I just love this episode. John was amazing. And you emailed me right back and you said, let me put you in touch with John. 
And so I called him and we had a wonderful phone conversation and it just set me up for the rest of my career in studio ownership. It was a really important phone call to me and he was generous with his time as were you. So wow. just wanted to get those things out of the way now that they're said, I'll talk about myself, but yeah. But before you go on, I will say, A, that's amazing. I'm glad that I did that. I'm glad that I connected you to John. Jim, that was a live interview. That was at AES or NAM. That's right. Yeah. Wow. That was, I got to have him back. He was great. He was a really great. Really good guest. Yeah. It was a, it was a special interview, especially since that it was live. There was just something about it. It was great. Hmm. Well, we'll do that again. We'll have to figure that out. Well, cool. Well, thank you. That's great. I'm glad that there's some value here for you and that it's paid off. Yes. Well, so tell me about your upbringing and brothers, sisters, music, technology. How did that play out in your early days of being a kid? Absolutely. Yeah. And growing up in Western Mass, there's no better place to grow up as far as I'm concerned. It's a beautiful area. I'm really grateful for my upbringing. I was brought up in a musical household with my mother's a musician and always encouraged me to play music. So I grew up playing music all the time, all through high school, then through college, playing in bands and playing a bunch of different instruments. Yeah, that was kind of how I how I started as a kid. And instrument-wise, what instruments were you attracted to? Well, I remember I started playing drums and that didn't last too long for me. I'm sure my my family was super pumped about that, that, that I didn't <laughs> keep going with drums. Oh, you're playing the drums. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you know all about that. But yeah, and then I, re- I remember playing trombone. I took trombone lessons and did that for a while. And I, I started playing guitar and piano really early, and those stuck. And I kept mm. playing guitar all through high school, Studied classically in college, kept playing in bands after college. So guitar is still something that I play. I don't play nearly as much as I'd like to, but it was always important to me. Were you aware of what was happening on records early on? Were you remotely interested in credits or sounds, anything of that nature? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like I, when I was young, I was. it was in the time of CDs. I had my Walkman. I was walking around, you know, with it. I even, I had a tape cassette player that I'd play walking around. And I don't know that I ever really looked that much into credits when I was a kid. I was just so focused on the music, which is funny to think of now, because the first thing I do when I hear a record is I look at the credits. It's super important to me to know who produced the record or who played on it or who engineered. But growing up, I didn't think a ton about the actual craft of making the music. I didn't really start thinking about that until college. And then became a lot more passionate about learning about that. So that came later, the interest in recording. I think so. I remember, you know, I was way more focused on being a musician through high school. I did a little bit of recording with friends in basements and area recording studios. But yeah, maybe senior year in high school, I can kind of remember being like, oh, yeah, I'm getting the bug for this. This is really fun being in the studio. But I feel like I was still coming at it as an artist and as a musician. But I, my degree in college was music and tech, music and technology. So it was, we did a lot of work in Pro Tools and Max MSP and signal processing, that mm. kind of thing. But it was really a music degree. So even then, I was really focused on being a musician more so. Where did you go to college? I went to Connecticut College. It's a very small liberal arts college in New London, Connecticut. And the music program was probably like 15 or 20 kids, something like that. Wow. But it was cool because I made it what I wanted it to be. And probably about halfway through college, I realized, like, I just want to be 
in the studio recording myself. So halfway through, I just sort of talked to all the professors and was like, this is really what I want to do. And they kind of let me tailor my major towards that. So what did that mean? Did that mean changing the direction of the major? I think it meant spending a lot more time in the recording studio than most other students. I did my work study in the music department, so I was always there recording recitals and audition tapes or whatever, stuff like that. And then I just laid into the night, be recording my band, other people's bands. I just sort of became a studio rat, which was not really what they'd set up there. Mm. And then in junior year, you know, a lot of people do their semester abroad. I pestered the people at the Clive Davis School at Tisch, mm -hmm. which is an amazing program, to let me in for a semester. They were like, oh, we don't really do that. But I had a couple friends in that program. And I was like, come on, you got to let me come for a semester and do this. And they finally relented. So I got to go to NYU for a semester and get my feet wet in a big old honking control room with a 64 input console and learn a little bit about that. So that was a cool supplement that the people at my school were really cool with that too, sort of having that be my semester abroad. When you realized that you wanted to be around or in studios, did it start to overtake you in terms of your focus? Like, did everything else start to fall away on the periphery? And did you just start to focus on working in studios? I feel like it was happening in parallel all the time. Again, I mean, my main goal for a long time, high school through college, was I'm going to be a singer, a songwriter, a guitar player, mm. and I'm going to play in bands. And recording was a big part of that. But it was less a big part of that for doing it for other people. It was more so, all right, this is for me and my band. And I feel like even... A couple years after college, you know, living in New York, even having worked in a couple studios, doing an internship and learning more about actual recording studios, I still really wanted to be in a band. And then around 2012, I was just kind of like, you know what? I'm spending so much time doing the production and engineering part of this. And that's when things sort of start to fall away a little bit. But I still try to write music. I still try to be an active musician because that's important to me. It's important to my clients. So when did you graduate? I graduated in 2010. And where do you go from there? Like you're fresh out of college. Where's your head at at that moment? Well, I'd done this. I did two internships actually when I was at NYU for that semester. During the day, I was working on a record label called Engine Room Recordings. I don't think they have a label anymore, but they do have a studio, a pretty nice mm. one in, in Manhattan called Engine Room Audio, I want to say. Really cool spot. But they ran a record label there for a while. So I worked behind the scenes business stuff. And then at nights, I'd go work at Avatar, which is now Power Station. And that was kind of like total ass kicker, really learning how to be functioning in a recording studio. Super humbling. The assistants there who I was working for were amazing people. And I'm still in touch with them all the time. And that was, that was in 2009. So it's amazing that we're still in touch. But after having those experiences, leaving college, I, I just wanted to be in the city. So I was in New York for a couple of years, still working a little bit in recording, but mostly as a client. I'd book Avatar for my band, or I'd book one of the assistants who had gone out and been a freelancer. I'd book him to mix my record for a couple of weeks. It was more so as a client, but I'd always be watching what they were doing and thinking about the production and engineering. But that was really the first two years out of college was just focused on trying to play music. And I feel like the turning point was around 2012 when I was starting to help a couple other people make their record. 
you know, I was getting a little bit in the, down in the dumps about where things were going with my own career. I know this is kind of a theme. You talk to a lot of audio engineers who start as musicians and it's like, well, I started to realize it was going to take a lot of work to be a really good musician, you know, <laughs> and I was starting to feel that way a bit myself. So 2012, I moved out in New York, moved to Connecticut and started freelancing pretty much full time. And it's been like that. It's 11 years. Was that tough to survive? It was. Yeah. There are a lot of people who start in audio where they don't have to really worry about surviving per se. <laughs> Which is why I think this podcast appeals to me a lot, because no one's going to make this happen except for us. I had a bit of a safety net, but I had to work. I had to work every single day. Yeah. And that meant casting a wide net on the kinds of things I was working on. So I went back and, and worked at my alma mater for a couple of years, running their recording studio. Mm. So I could work with some clients, but I was also doing some live sound. I was doing some archiving stuff, doing recitals, doing whatever it is that they needed me to do. So that was important. And I learned a lot doing a lot of different kinds of things. So survival was definitely difficult. I, I remember, oh my God, when my wife listens to this, she'll think this is hilarious. But when we first started dating in 2012, I was working at an FYE at the local mall. Do you remember FYE? It was like I a don't. record what store. What is that? It was like a record store, like a like a proper record store. Okay. I'm sure it's not there now, but it was around Christmas time and I really needed some extra cash. And they had me dress up like an elf <laughs> to, to like welcome people to the store. So I, to my wife, then girlfriend, I was like, hey, you know, I'm this cool rock star guy, you know, recording people or whatever. And then I texted her a picture of me in my elf costume. <laughs> And that kind of slowed our relationship down for a while. She was a little less interested in me for a she few weeks, She probably I think. became a little concerned. Uh, just a little concerned. That's what you have to do, though. You got to work the part-time gig. So I did a few things like that, but really spent a ton of time audio engineering at that point. That's interesting. So you said something there about, I'm this kind of rock star, recording music kind of guy. Was that your perception of yourself or was that how people referred to you? I say that more as how I feel like I was perceived at that point. How I feel like I am is I'm a customer service person. So a couple of the jobs that I did after college and through college even, you know, I was working telephone customer service. I was doing telemarketing or I worked for a company that did like VIP packages for big music festivals and coordinated with their guests about their lodging and what they were up to. So yeah. I always lead with a customer service thing. So I feel like I'm just kind of a geek, really. Not so much a technical geek, but just a geek for working with people. And I kind of dropped any desire to be a rock star or be on the stage. I think last time I was on a stage, I almost threw up in the bathroom. I was so nervous. I haven't done that in a while. So <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. No, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I ask because sometimes as I... um interact with whether it's other parents, meaning other parents in, in the schools that you meet via your kids or whatever. And, you know, in conversation, some people will kind of bring it up. They'll be like, so, and you can already hear it coming. It's like a torpedo off in the distance about to hit the submarine. You know, it's like, oh, here it comes. Here it comes. Yep. And they're like, so you're kind of a music person. And you're, and <laughs> Like immediately you're like, uh, yeah, kind of, you know? <laughs> oh my God. And it's exactly, it's, I've always felt a little like awkward about it, but at the same time, it's like, okay, I'll engage. I'll tell him what I do and how my world works, obviously. 
there's people that are far more successful than I am that that can really tell some stories, I'm sure. But it is exactly it's that's why I, I probe a little deeper on that. Yeah, I have to tell you real quick on that. I, I remember my high school sweetie, her mother, we were all sitting in their living room and she asked, this person's going to be applying to this college. This person's going to be applying to this college. And where are you going to go to school, Andrew? The school of rock and roll? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so glad that she said that because I get to tell that story. It cracks me up every time. Yeah. <laughs> Eye roll. Wow. All right. So, uh, the elf job clearly didn't work out long-term, fortunately. Yeah. Yeah. At that time, you're you're doing these other jobs and, and trying, I mean, you're doing the customer service thing, you're dressing up as an elf at the holiday at the record store. Like, were you personally getting a little down on yourself about the trajectory of things? Or did you think, no, this is cool. This is short-term. I got a plan. I never worried about how things were going to pan out. I think it's just, you know, I was pretty young at that time. I was in my 20s. I'm just kind of not thinking about too much. I'm not thinking about family yet. I'm just out on my own. I was really focused on making records with clients. So even though there were hours spent doing jobs for money, Mm -hmm. I was still reaching out to bands all the time. Bands that I'd gigged with, new bands that I heard and just reached out to. And I was renting this small cabin on the pond. It was the music department secretary's family's summer home in Connecticut, the music department at my alma mater down the street. And I'd bring bands over there and just set up shop for as long as they could stay and record. So I was always hustling new work. Even if I couldn't get studio time at the college's studio, I was always home recording, just always focused on making records at that point. So where do you take that? Where does it progress from there? Well, I did that for a couple years. And then in 2014, I was really interested in moving back to Western Massachusetts because I love this area a lot. And I moved back home with my then girlfriend, now wife, who's also from this area. And in 2014, I got a job as a staff engineer at a local studio, really beautiful studio, Neve console, great mic collection. And they were kind of like, hey, man, giving me like the small town vibes. Like if you go to a big studio in New York or something, you come there with your resume and you look good and you, and you want to do an interview. And they were just kind of like, who are you? You know, like, where are you coming from? What's your deal? And I'm like, I'm an engineer. I've made some records. I'd love to work here. And I could tell that they weren't going to give me anything. They weren't going to give me jobs. They weren't going to give me a job there. So I just kept playing the, the networking game and brought as many bands in as possible. And I just told the studio, Hey, can I at least try to bring some clients? And if I get comfortable in the room and you trust me, can I bring in some clients? And they were like, sure. And that started a really good two-year relationship where they did start giving me some jobs Hmm. and I was bringing in jobs. And it was a great place to cut my teeth. I feel really positive about that. Do you uh, think that their hesitancy in the beginning was because of your age or that you hadn't been in the area for some time or, and they didn't know you? Like, where does that stem from, do you think? A lot of it, I think, was due to my age. And I think about this a lot now because I field a ton of internship requests at our studio and meet with a lot of young people, work with a lot of area colleges, meeting their students. And I try to check myself. Why am I feeling skeptical about this young person? I'm not that old, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. I'm 35, but 19, 20, 21, 22 feels pretty young to me as a Mm -hmm. 35-year-old. And I think that a lot of people who come into recording studios are looking for 
a handout still, or like a job opportunity or something. Like it's just something that you do. You go to college and then you get a job. That is sometimes how it works in our industry, but a lot of times not so much. You have to really, really show that you're committed and that you're willing to clean toilets and do dishes and all this stuff. And I think that's probably what this studio was used to. So seeing another young person come through their door, especially Western Mass is this area of Western Mass is a big college area. There are five big colleges here. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of students, big student population. I think they were kind of used to that. So I knew that I had to show them something different, that I meant business and that I wanted to work and that I had industry experience at other studios. I will admit that younger people who have very little experience, but a lot of energy and a lot of, I'm not saying this across for everybody, but it, it takes the right personality to see a young, hungry, wannabe engineer come in the door and how to gauge that. Okay, is this person going to be a waste of time? Are they going to become a pain in the ass? Like all these things in the past have run through my mind as I've dealt with that. Do you think that there are certain things that you've identified that you could point out to young people listening now to go to say to them, hey, maybe don't do this if you're trying to get your foot in the door in a studio, like things that bug you? A hundred percent. And working at Avatar, now Power Station, did that to me. I learned quick about what to do and what not to do and how your actions correlate to you staying in the room or getting thrown out of the room. <laughs> so I learned exactly what studio etiquette means early and I got my butt kicked early. And the thing that I would say to people is it's the long game when you're coming into a studio environment. You have to build trust. And the way that you build trust among the engineers and the staff at a studio is by keeping your mouth completely shut and moving very quickly to do whatever it is that needs to be doing. Keeping your eyes open, keeping your eyes off the phone, this is like, I was doing my internship before we were all glued to social media on our phones all the time. Nowadays, I feel like it's a little more accepted. Like if I go into a studio and I see the assistant, it's a little less jarring to see them on their phone, maybe. But I think at the highest level of, of what we do in our gigs, it's like, especially if you're an assistant or an intern, you have to keep your eyes open and be running around to do whatever it is that needs to be done next. Being really proactive is the biggest thing. If you see a little bit of dust or a, or a cup, oh, Leslie Brathwaite. Oh, the Leslie Bra I know exactly what you're talking about. The Leslie Brathwaite story where they would put a cup on the ground and see who picked it up. That really resonated with me. Oh, me and that's too. it. Like that all the way. I would say this to the younger crowd listening. If you want to know a little bit about studio etiquette and like how to be of service in the studio, watch a movie like Goodfellas. Watch a mob movie. Watch how the younger people coming into the mafia, how they survive amongst the mafia bosses and the captains and et cetera, et cetera. Like watching that, I don't know why it's taken me this long to figure it out, but I, Ray Liotta from Goodfellas just flashed across Love my it. brain. And really that's what it is. It's keeping your mouth shut, being ready, doing whatever they ask you to do within reason, obviously. And yep. uh, just being of service and doing that for a period of time until you build the trust and they're willing to take you up the ladder. 
Absolutely. That's exactly it. And one other thing I would add is just the rewards that you get from that kind of behavior or remembering those points that you just mentioned when you're going into a professional situation in a recording studio, the rewards are huge and they come quicker than you might think. I remember even in just a short time at Avatar, like the assistants would call me in after the session and we'd pull everything up on the console and have a couple beers that the band left and just solo stuff out on the desk. And they trusted me to do that and not blow it, you know, by telling everybody about that experience. So the rewards that you get from remembering those things that you mentioned are are big and they come quick. Set up the timeline here for Ghost Hit and your time at this other studio that you, you're at. Absolutely. So started working at this other studio in Amherst, Massachusetts in 2014. Then in 2016, a friend of mine who's a really talented musician and producer connected me with this Bay Area MC rapper, spoken word artist named Watsky, George Watsky. And George's usual engineer wasn't available Hmm. to make this record. He got like a really awesome tour managing gig and he was not interested in engineering a record at that moment. So I did some demos with George. He came out to Massachusetts because he's got some friends out here and we did a couple demos. And after doing that, he was like, hey man, you want to just come do the album? And I was like, Okay, I don't I don't know that I've ever worked on like a really long project like this before because we were talking about working for a couple months. And so I told the studio that I was working, I was like, you know, I think I'm gonna go out and work on this record for a while and I don't know when I'm gonna be back around. And they're like, okay, no problem. And uh, I just sort of went and worked on this Watsky record. And it was amazing, man. We did a week in New York, we did three weeks in LA. We were doing like full string sections and choirs and brass and All the demos were programming, but we would track a lot of live ensembles to replace that program. It was an amazing record and people should check it out. It's called Watsky Times Infinity. So we did that in, oh, I don't know, about maybe six weeks, four to six weeks. And then I mixed it at my home studio (laughs) that I'd been setting up for a couple years at that point. And that was kind of my first trial by fire, like bigger mix that was going to have a lot of ears on it. And... After that record, I had a little bit of a nest egg because I didn't have any overhead at that time. I was just freelancing and renting my house with my now wife. So I had this little chunk of change. And when I thought about going back to work at this studio, I realized like, man, I'm making 15 bucks an hour at this studio. I'm a staff engineer, air quotes, but I'm not really like making a ton of dough here. I can make a lot more if I'm just by myself negotiating my own fees and renting studios, or maybe even, I thought to myself, having my own studio. So 2016, I took all the money I made from the Watsky record. It wasn't a ton, but it was a lot for me at that time, and started my first studio, which was the first iteration of Ghost Hit Recording. It was in this old industrial kind of mill building. We've heard about that a lot as audio professionals, people starting in old warehouses and things like that. And that, mm-hmm. that was the first iteration of the studio, and I was there for... 2016 to 2019. It was an amazing place to start. Made a ton of records there. And the last record I made there was Grammy nominated. So I can't ever knock that room. It was this big 2000 square foot rectangle that I just did all my treatment on, had the control room as part of the live room. It was a really great place to start. So Hmm. that was the beginning of the studio. That's great that you realized your worth there. It's like, okay, well, I could stay here at 15 bucks an hour but you knew something about yourself and about what was possible. 
Yes, absolutely. And around that time is when I'm starting to listen to the podcast. I'm gathering a lot of core concepts that you talk about, like keeping your overhead low. And what I talked to John Vanderslice about was sort of the democratization of studio rates within your market and what it means to be affordable as a recording studio. Are you underselling yourself? Not if you're working every single day. And if you really want to work every single day, you can make that model work without charging $1,000 a day for studio time. So that really worked for me. The first iteration of the studio worked for me. It's a little different now. I'm definitely not living by the Matt Boudreaux, keep your overhead low philosophy at the moment. Oh, but no. I've grown into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've fallen off the wagon, man. Let me bring you back I in. <laughs> I feel bad. Well, so how long did that studio last? It lasted for three years. Three really good years. Was it just you? Yeah, it was just me. Okay. And there were a lot of challenges, a lot of positive times, but the challenges were working 15, 16 days in a row, 12, 13 hours a day. And, you know, trying to have a social life when you're in your late 20s, it's just not happening. Yeah. So a lot of people in our field start with that experience, especially if they're an assistant at a studio. Like, you can't choose your hours. You got to be ready to go. And I really appreciated having that background, even though I never had that experience really being like a hardcore assistant for like years and moving up the ladder. I got a taste of that, but I didn't do that. But I knew the kind of hours that you had to spend to survive in this business. But that was the hardest part. The other tough part was the building. I mean, it was beautiful, the room I was in, but it was an active shipping and receiving warehouse. So a lot of forklifts beeping, a lot of trucks outside. And that was difficult. So I remember, again, that last record that I did, which I'm super proud of, the last record I did in that studio, we were dealing with trucks beeping and loud music outside on the street. And I was like, you know what? I'm really proud of this album and I'm not super proud of this client experience right now. <laughs> so that's when I started looking into other options and just the perfect option presented itself to me around that time, mm. 2019. So that's where I am currently which is a studio that I worked at off and on from 2014 to 2019. I was friendly with the owner, older guy, built a beautiful studio into an old church. We all know that old churches make pretty darn good recording studios if you've got a good build out, and he did. So when he said to me that he was thinking about retiring, or at least partially retiring, we spent a lot of time bumping heads trying to find someone who was going to buy this building. And he was thinking, well, maybe you can manage it. Maybe you can be the, the manager and an engineer here and we'll find another owner. And I was like, that sounds awesome because I can get out from under the little bit of overhead that I do have, this kind of difficult studio that I've got and start working at a bigger place that's going to be quiet. It's better treated. It's got a lot of different booths. It's got a control room, all these amenities. It was great. And it became clear over about a year period, really, that no one else was going to invest in this building. Mm. It was just not going to happen. And I think that the guy who I eventually bought the building from was, was sort of thinking like, I got to just get out from under this. I want to move on with my life. So my wife and I talked about it and saw you know, how well things were going at the first iteration of the studio. And it was scary. There were a lot of really scary conversations and scary moments and a lot of hurdles the most principle of which being that we couldn't get a conventional mortgage to buy this building. Oh. So we were not going to get like a 30-year fixed interest rate loan to buy this building. It's too weird. It's like a 9,000 square foot 
220 year old church. Like the banks that I went to were like, uh, what is this? Why are we going to lend on this? And it didn't seem that weird to me, but I couldn't find a lender. So it took me getting a commercial loan with an SBA 504 loan, which is a federal program through the Small Business Administration, to buy this place. And we successfully closed in January 2020 with two mortgages, with some pretty serious terms on those mortgages. So I had a moment of weakness a couple of years ago and forgot all my Matt Boudreaux teachings. And now here I am with my two mortgages. But so far, so good. Right. But you're investing in an asset. Yes. So that's, I mean, that's a little bit different than consumer credit card debt of like going over to Reverb and going hog wild, right? That's true. So are you saying it's two mortgages on the building? Two mortgages just on the building. So I've got a Sweetwater credit card that I always keep pretty racked up, but I don't have any other big loans on gear, for example. Okay. I've just got the mortgages on the building. So, okay, okay. And now the way the real estate market has gone, particularly in our area, it was a good investment. <laughs> it was definitely a good investment. The challenge was the timing of that investment. As I said, we closed January 2020 and had an amazing February 2020. Oh. And then things were a little different <laughs> starting March 2020. Yeah. Okay. Interest rate wise, did you have the same interest rate on both the loans? No. The SBA 504 is, we closed at market rate at that time, which is a good rate. We're talking, I think it's around 3.8. Okay. Okay. Something cool. Like that. But that's for less than half of the of the purchase price. So a little more than half is a commercial loan with a local lender that is variable. And we're, Ooh. yeah. When we closed on that loan, it was 5%. And they give you these options. They're like, okay, you can have it be five years at really low, or you can have it like 10 years, like kind of in the middle. Or you can have it be really high for 20 years because it's a 20-year term. Oh, It was interesting. And I remember I'd, I've got some friends who work in finance and I was like, what, what do you think about this? You know, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. What do you think about this? And they were like, play the middle of the road. Get the term where it's your rate's kind of in the middle, but it's for a longer term. And right now I'm glad that I did that because I'm coming up on another two years here. And then we'd be talking you know, maybe around double the rate. That's scary. Even with all the costs of this building are going up right now, and I don't know if I can handle a big interest rate hike on, on that mortgage right now. Well, so I think the Fed has got, I can't remember where the interest rate's at right now, but if I'm right, for your variable rate, as the Fed raises the interest rate, or do you see that immediately reflected in your rate? No. Oh, because your rate's fixed. It's actually fixed. I mean, the SBA fixed, loan that I have is fixed. It's the but rate. It, Okay, the SBA loan is fixed, but the other... That, that's variable, does that change every so many years? Or does it that will change? change? Okay, it will change. All right. It will change because of how I set it up. I think the option for, again, it's a 20-year note. If I'd kept it at 20 years for the term, I'm pretty sure the rate would have been something like five and a half. And I kind of wish I'd done that at this point, but I didn't know what was going to happen. So who knows? Can you refinance? And squeeze it all into one? Probably. Okay. Probably. Because I've thought about that before and I open up my web browser and Google, you know, how to refinance your 
commercial loan and your SBA 504 like duo loan or whatever, I just, my brain goes in circles. You know, I'm just, I'm keeping my fingers in so many pies at this point. I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about how to strategize with the money stuff. Yeah. Maybe talk to a mortgage broker and see about yeah. rolling both those into one like three or 4% loan on the whole property if you can, especially if the value of the property's gone up. Which it has. I'm definitely interested in doing that. Maybe if if the housing market out here and the way the Fed treats the interest rates kind of chills out a little bit, I could see that being really advantageous for sure. Boy, we're getting really into the heart of working class audio right now, huh? This is what I tune in for. (laughs) Right. This is is the, the meat and potatoes of it. Well, That's so, right. okay, you've got this studio, you ended up buying it, you get a double mortgage to do it. You got support from your wife, which is great. You have these two other guys there at the studio, Jake and Polly, is that right? That's right. Tell me about them coming in and, and getting involved and how that all works. Yeah, I think for the first year, year and a half, it was just me again. You know, that's all I'd gotten used to. It was a one man show, even though the facility got a lot bigger, it was still just me running it. And I realized that a lot more of my work was becoming mixing Mm -hmm. and I didn't necessarily need to book a 3000 square foot recording studio to mix. And I was investing in more stuff for my home studio. I realized that those two things can coexist really well. Because a lot of times when I'm mixing, I really just want to be on headphones a lot. I mix on headphones a ton. Mm -hmm. I use the Focal Clear MG Pro or something. They're phenomenal. But I just realized that I didn't need my control room to be mixing all the time. And that made me realize also there's a great opportunity to start networking with other area engineers who I could collaborate with and invest in those people to get them comfortable in my room. And so far, I have to say, I'm glad that they can work here because the studio's booked more and I'm working here less, which I love. It's great after all those years of tons of days of long hours. The other thing that's amazing is the collaboration. They're improving my studio all the time with their new ideas. I listen to them. I let them change things that they think could be made better. I try to ask them a lot for feedback and it just makes the whole place way leveled up asking friends and bringing people together as part of this thing it it's been paying dividends but these two particular guys are phenomenal engineers in their own right they're not assistants they're not interns i think either of them is as good or better an engineer than i am so yeah check out our website listen to their work they're phenomenal so moving forward bringing more engineers in? Is that is that the game plan? Yes and no. I think we're at a place now where I feel really good about the balance. Right. So when I say the balance, I mean like the balance of time available. So there was, there's definitely been times when I'll get a booking inquiry for a band that I want to work with. And I'll look at the calendar and the calendar's booked two or three months out. Right now, if someone hits me up and says, I want to book a week at the studio to make a record, we're looking at the end of October. So that's the challenge when you have a lot of people booking the room. Because it's only one control room, right? That's right. So it's one control room, one live room. And then we have two apartments in the building, which are beautiful. And we have those now just for visiting clients. And that's a big part of our draw. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. So how much of your business involves people staying long-term and using those apartments? A big portion. Okay. It's a big deal for us. And that's something that's new and old at the same time. We had half of the first floor of the building as client accommodations for a long time. It's been that way since the guy who we bought the building from built everything into the church. He built these two beautiful apartments in and had one just for clients. And the other, he and his wife actually lived in. Beautiful place. And then in September of last year, I guess, September 2022, I realized that we'd had tenants for a while. And while it was working out okay, like having permanent tenants, I just didn't love splitting my focus. I didn't love thinking about someone's user experience living in my building and thinking about my clients upstairs and how those two things interacted. So I talked it over with my wife and we realized that that should also be client accommodations. Now I'd say, ah, it's booked a lot. I, I think there are some months where every single day someone's staying here and working here. There are some months where Every single day is booked in the studio, but only half of it is booked downstairs for the accommodations. But it's a big deal. And we work with people from all over the country because we're able to offer that as sort of part of a package. And that's led to relationships with two amazing producers who we work with a ton who can now show up and do amazing work pretty much on their own. And those people are Alan Day, who plays in a band called Four Year Strong, absolutely amazing musician and singer, guitar player, songwriter, great producer. He's in the hard rock world, but works in a bunch of different genres. And he really does bring in acts from all over the country. So the fact that we have the accommodations for his artists is a big part of the reason why he comes, because he wants them to be comfortable. And same goes for Mike Sapone, who's been an amazing ally to this studio in the last year. And if anyone's not familiar with Mike's work, please look him up. He's responsible for sort of the breakout 
Taking Back Sunday and Brand New Records, mm. another amazing music maker who's been coming here in part because of the accommodations, because we can make his clients really comfortable while they work here. Do you take a, an approach with this apartment studio thing where like, if a producer calls and says, hey, I want to bring a band in, do you help project manage? Like, okay, the band's going to stay here. Here's where you can eat. Here's where you can get groceries to make sure that their stay is a smooth one. That's exactly what I do. And I, I really treat it that way. And you can tell, I mean, the people really appreciate it. They appreciate having the information. I use Gmail email templates a lot. Mm -hmm. So I just have a template for like, go here to eat and get groceries. Here's a bunch of information on the apartment. You never have to feel like, where's the toilet paper? Where's the towels or anything like that? I have one sheets in the apartment, but to me, coming from a customer service background, it's about those details. And you know, even Alan has said it to me before, he'll come in a couple hours early before his clients arrive and I'm cleaning the toilets in the apartment. And he's like, wow, you're you're really going there for this, huh? You know, I don't know if my clients care that much about how clean you're making this place. He's looking at the beds and and I'm like, well, I care. You know, this is yeah, this is what's giving me peace of mind. I want to know that they're taken care of. It's it's a hospitality industry in yeah. a big way. Well, you know, and I also think about I think this is like the second time in the the last several episodes I brought Steve Albini up in terms of how things are run. So I think he's got lodging at electrical. But they charge, I think it's like a small amount extra on top of the existing studio rate. Have you ever thought about that? Or do you just try to rope it all into the same thing? That's exactly how we structure it. It's a fee. Oh, it's an extra fee. Okay. It's an add-on. The way that we price it, the way that I try to price it is like, have it be significantly less than a hotel or Airbnb that's comparable in any way. Yeah. So we're kind of advantaged out the gate because of how nice these places are. We're super fortunate that the guy who we bought the building from did such a beautiful job with these apartments because they're stunning. If you were a rock band and showed up to make your record at the studio, the reaction that I get from these people is like, oh my God, like, what is this place? Like, they're almost a little weirded out because <laughs> it's so nice. Because of how nice it is. You know, they're picturing like a bunk room. Like, you've, there are all sorts of pictures on the website. So it's not like a, guarded secret or anything, but it's something that I want to charge for. I don't charge a premium for it, which is why it works. It's affordable. The rate to book the studio is affordable, way more affordable than comparable studios in our area, I feel. And I, I know that because when I can't book a project here, I've got to call somewhere else. I want to book a week of studio time. What can we do? Right. I mean, it's anywhere from 1200 to 15, 1,700, 2,200 a day. That's without me getting paid. Evan Baki, who you talked to, who's a good friend of mine. Okay. Yeah, he's incredible guy, amazing engineer. Oh, that's right. I think it was Evan who recommended you. Oh, thank you, Evan. You are such a sweet person to do that. I really appreciate it. But Evan's incredible. And he runs Power Station New England, which is an unbelievable facility. And coming from Avatar, I walk into that room and it, it is piece of wood for piece of wood, Studio A. It's freaky, man. That studio is unbelievable. And Evan has completely, when I was in college, because I went to college maybe 15, 20 minutes away from Power Station, New England. That's right. And at the time, I mean, it's part of a larger, at least at that time, it was part of kind of a post-production facility, big sound stages and stuff like that. And then nestled into it is this kind of nondescript building where you walk in and it's like you're walking into Manhattan in 1975. It's incredible. 
But Evan, since that time, it has made it such a viable option. And when I was in college, I think it was kind of not the priority. And now it, you, you go there, the gear is top notch. Evan's so good about all the maintenance and making sure that everything's taken care of. He comes at it with the same thing that I do, which is customer service, customer service, customer service. So, you know, like I would love to work there more. I've worked there two or three times. But I mean, to be honest, it's an incredible caliber of facility. I think their rates are fair for what they offer, but it's still not always what my clients can afford. Right. Which is dumb. And I stand corrected. I got to give credit where credit's due. Evan's great, but it wasn't actually Evan that recommended you. It was Alan Evans, who I think very highly of, who's been a guest on the show a couple of times. So anyway. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Alan. Yeah. I I met Alan recently. I've been a Soul Live fan since high school. I was, they were a big part of my musical upbringing and to meet him in the context of, of my studio. And as I mean, I can barely get the word out as a peer. Oh my God. Am I peers with Alan Evans? I don't know, <laughs> but he's such a sweet guy and an amazing talent. And I felt a little sheepish because I've got a Soul Life poster hanging in one of the apartments and I was giving him and his wife Kim a tour. And I was like, oh yeah, that's my Soul Life poster. And he was yeah, like, it's oh, right funny on. with with Alan. I, I never met him in person yet. I feel like a bond with him. Like, we ha- like we've known each other for years, which is funny. So- He's got that innate ability to make you feel like you've known him for a long time. He really does. Yeah. Yeah. Friendly guy and super talented. Thank you, Al. But I will put a link in the show notes both to Evan and Al so people can check them out. Well, so it's interesting, speaking of both of those guys, I mean, those are two people who, well, in fact, Al just stopped doing his studio. Like he's changed his whole way of of doing things. Evan, of course, I've talked to extensively, in fact, was advising them on their Atmos install because they kind of duplicated what I have in my That's space. Great. Do you seek out other studio owners to talk about like, well, how are you doing it? Like, how, how does this work for you? All the time. And not much as I'd like to. I was just talking to Alan about this. It would be really cool to get a group together with some regularity. I know you do this yourself with a couple groups, right? Yeah. It's like, I've got my Atmos group. I've got my Friday morning mastermind group. I love it. I've got my Golden Gate Mixers group. Yeah. Right. Right. And that's great. That's really appealing to me. I'd love to do something more like that because you learn so much in such short spans of time from talking to other people in your area who who do what they do. You're like, oh, I I didn't think about it that way or I, I haven't tried that. But I try to stay in touch with other studios. You know, there are some beautiful studios out here within an hour of our location. And I'd like to go back to being a freelancer sometimes. So I love my studio. I think it's phenomenal, but it's really fun to go other places. And I'd like to do more of that. It's just the budget's not always there when you have overhead like I do. Yeah. Well, okay. So you're you're in a, a position now with, you said a four-week-old? Yes. Okay. So you've got this four-week-old and I'm sure at this point you've realized that doing it all on your own is just not a sustainable way to do things because it's it's too hard. You got to farm other stuff out and you got to keep other people involved because then they have skin in the game and, and, and they want to see the studio succeed. Where do you think you could do better in what you're doing? Like, what do you identify as the points that you're like, I really want to work on 
this. And I'm not talking about kick drum sounds. I'm talking about running the studio. Exactly. It's so funny. I'm in a point now where it's like the last thing that I'm interested in, this is a terrible thing to say. I'm going to say it anyways. The last thing I'm interested in is like kick drum sounds or snare sounds or electric guitar sounds. Because a lot of the times these days, I'm just wearing my business owner hat. And when I come in for a session, I really flip off the business owner hat and just think the engineer hat, you know, but it's like these days in particular, I'm just thinking about what you asked me. How can I make this a sustainable arrangement for me and now for me and my family. Mm -hmm. So she's four weeks old. I'm taking a full three months off from recording work, which I'm super proud of. And in Massachusetts, we get this thing called paid family medical leave, which I have available to me as a self-employed person. So I can basically get paternity leave. So I've got this summer now with my wife and my new daughter, and I just couldn't be happier about it. It's unbelievable. And yet, especially this week, I get up in the morning and the first thing that I'm thinking about is I can't imagine what it's going to be like when she's three months old and I'm working in the studio and I'm coming up on hour 11 with my rock band in the studio and I'm thinking about her and her mom at home and how I could be helping them. So it's led to a lot of reflection at this point in time about how can I have the same standard that I have when I'm at the studio every single day, how can I apply that going forward without me being present every day for the same number of hours? So the answer to that is bringing in more help. So I've, I've hired a cleaning person who I pay way more than I should. Her rates are very fair, but just like for my business model, I'm big on the cleaning. So I have someone else who comes in and helps with the cleaning. I've got the other engineers, so I'm continuing to invest in their experience so that they feel comfortable and really excited about bringing their acts in here. So those are the two biggest things. Like, Start thinking about systems, ways that I can spend more time away from the studio but feel confident about the user experience, and then investing in other people who do my job so that I can feel not as bad about not being here every day. Because I, I want to work less. You know, That's going to be the goal for a long time. Yeah, because you're in that you're in that stage, early parenthood, and you're going to have to really concentrate on making sure that the business is sustainable, so that that income is coming in. And by doing that, I feel like you're helping other people, other engineers stay employed because they're counting on that space being a solid thing. I think you're in a great position. I know that two mortgages at the rates that they're at and and the the variable nature of the one is a little scary. But back to the original thing, I think that like you're in a great position to have that as an asset that's only going to grow over time. So this is the time to really figure out those systems. And I'm sure, as you said, you're taking this time off and it's a, it's a great time to distance yourself a little bit so that you can like think, how can I make this really work for me and for everybody else in the group? Like, right. do we need to bring in another person? Is there any other gear we need to buy? Is there any gear we need to sell? Exactly. Question though, there's times when those apartments are sitting empty, are they not? That's true. Okay. So... I'm going to, I'm just, sorry, I don't mean to take over your interview, but here's a couple of no, thoughts no, for please. you. You know, one is to me, the most obvious is maybe you try to gauge the calendar of who's coming in and who's not coming in and then make those apartments available on Airbnb Yep, for limited, limited dates. 
The other thing too is to, on a case by case basis, you know, maybe set up a couple of modular mix room type situations so that maybe it's a bunch of tube traps or or something and a little mix rig that somebody can be in there and they can mix and it can be torn down at a moment's notice because it's modular so that you could say, hey, come in on a daily rate and have a great room to mix in with these two apartments. Dude, I'm not bullshitting here. The working class audio primer continues here because I hadn't thought of that about making it modular. In my mind, it was always one or the other. I've got accommodations for clients or I've got Studio B. I decided to go against the Studio B vibe because of the investment, Mm. what it would actually take to build rooms downstairs. And I hadn't thought about make a modular rig, like portable tube traps. Great idea. And this does happen a lot. You know, Alan Day, who I mentioned, who works here a lot, he usually brings someone with him to guitar tech and to assist and to do drum editing. And a lot of times we'll set him up downstairs. So that flow is already kind of clear to me what that could be like. And I think that's a great idea. Just have it be move it into the closet, pull it out of the closet. Simple as that. And charge something, but it's less, obviously. It would would be so easy to do voiceover down there, for example. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just to have like my rig here at home is this sound anchor cart where I keep everything on. Now you could go with something a little cheaper than that, but just have like a cart with a big ass monitor. Maybe it's even like you go to Costco and you get one of those giant ass TVs and you get it on a thing that rolls. So it's like, yes, let's roll the TV in, plug it in, let them bring their laptop and set up a a nice set of speakers. I love it. It's a no brainer. And luckily we've got a Costco two minutes away that I just signed up for. So rock and roll. (laughs) Let's go buy some TVs. (laughs) It's so funny because it's like, I went in there with my wife for the first time. We were like, what's with all the TVs and like appliances and stuff. I was thinking that it was just going to be like TP and bottled water or something, but it's amazing. I love it. Oh, I've long been a Costco fan. Like I say, not to take over your interview, but that's what I I would do. It's like maximize those spaces, bring in people and keep the uh, business flowing and keep the attention on that studio. That's great. Thank you for that. I love it. That's going to be my 2024 project right there. Awesome. Glad to help. I know it's an expense, but have you considered Atmos? I have considered it. I've considered it a lot. And recently, again, I've got my working class audio primer in the back of my head all the time. Diversification. My wife is a filmmaker and we've been getting some more requests just for audio post. And definitely worked on a few films before doing dialogue editing and sound design and audio post-production and mixing. And a lot of those people really do need the format. In music, we work with a lot of indie clients where it's not first on their list of requests. We're going to need an Atmos mix of this. But most label requests are. And a lot of projects that I've worked on that have gone on to do Atmos is the stems from the mix get sent to an engineer to make the Atmos mix out of. So that's probably what I thought would have kept happening. But now with the consideration of film and other media, different kinds of clientele, it's definitely more on my mind. So not set up for Atmos yet, thinking about it now more than ever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's so many possibilities and it sounds like you have a great space there. And you say it's 9,000 square feet. The whole building's about that. This building is humongous. Yeah. Maybe not 9,000, maybe between seven and nine, something like that. I don't want to freak out any of the town assessors who have come over here to measure it out. So, (laughs) 
But yeah, I mean, the, the apartments are very large. The The smaller of the two apartments is 1,400 square feet. The larger of the two is 1,800 square feet. That's bigger than the house that I rent. And the studio is really a solid 3,000. And then there's a lot of lobby and incidental and closet space. So it's a big building, a lot of cleaning. My house is like 1,700 square feet. I know. I walk into the bigger of those two apartments and I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> I know my clients feel that way too. Just like, this place is big. Wow. Wow, you could set up a whole team of people working on post-production for a film in one of those apartments. It's true. I've thought about that many times. I mean, we landed on the residential because it was kind of the path of least resistance to utilizing that space quickly. Yeah. But there's definitely room to grow into the rest of this building. I've had a lot of my my peers and engineers who work here be like, hey, I could totally set up a B room over here, right? I was like, yeah, you probably could. We just need some pretty serious change to do it right, but you could do it. Yeah. With a building like that, I'm sure there's a lot of other costs that one might not think of when they get involved. And I'm sure that you were probably caught off guard a couple of times, maybe like, oh, there's that? Oh, crap. Like, what's the utility bill? I mean, just the heating of that space. I mean, you're in Massachusetts. It snows, right? Big time. Big time, right. So what's the heating bill like? How is it heated? Is it heating oil or is it? Tell me about that. It's gas. It's the gas line from the town. It's Eversource. As of pretty recently, actually, Eversource bought the company that delivered the gas here. So we've got Eversource for our electric and gas. The gas heats hot water tanks that do a radiant floor in the studio and mm. do radiators on the first floor. So it's a really quiet setup, which I appreciate. In Massachusetts, we have something called Mass Save, which is a way to get into cost saving and environmental preserving measures for your hulking 220 year old New England church. So it's something I'm very interested in. It also takes a lot of effort to set that kind of a thing up. You're right on the money in terms of the cost being high. The overhead for the utilities is high and it's a challenge. I set it up on payment plans. So it's not like I pay a gajillion dollars in the winter or the summer yeah. for the utilities. So that helps it's still a lot. And and that means just for the casual listener, for the uninformed listener, that means you've basically established the same rate across all 12 months of the year. So it kind of averages out. So you're not like hit with like a $4,000 bill one month and the $400 bill six months down the line. That's exactly right. So that, that definitely helps out a lot. I think the other things that were kind of hidden when we bought the church is one thing was, this is a historic building. It's part of a local historic district in West Springfield, and it's kind of a revered building. It was built in 1800, and it was kind of the first meeting house in West Springfield. It's up on top of this hill. It's a very visible structure. The people who live here really care about it. And for years, they'd been trying to, to get the place fixed up. And me fixing up this property was a big part of me getting the loans that I got because my lenders looked at the state of the building and they said, you're going to have to take care of that paint. You're going to have to take care and make sure that, that the steeple of that structure is sound. So that was always on the table. We had it taken care of by a CPA grant, which in Massachusetts, we have something called the Community Preservation Act that you can adopt by town. And West Springfield's CPA, they do like parks and rec, public housing, historic preservation, projects like that. So property taxes from the town feed this pot. And the Historic Commission had been wanting to get their hands on this building for a long time. And I talked to them about it at length before closing the sale of the building. 
So they were already briefed about what my intentions were, and we put in a ton of money. After I wrote a grant, I'd never written a grant before, but I, I wrote a pretty substantial grant to repaint the building, make sure that the structural integrity was sound, and take care of everything on the laundry list that my lender had wanted me to take care of. However, this was the unforeseen part, is that what happens when you make major improvements to a very visible, beloved structure in a town? The town assessor comes by, right? <laughs> so we've substantially improved this building. People drive by all the time and they shout to me like, great job painting the church. It looks beautiful. We love this so much. And what happens in reality is that the town then comes to me and says, hey, we're going to have to take your property taxes up. Your assessed level of this building is now much higher than what you bought it at. You're going to have to pay more in tax. So I have no problem telling you now, I pay more in property tax for this building than I do in rent for my house <laughs> outside of Northampton, Massachusetts, which some listeners may realize the rental rates out here are bananas. Wow. So it's, it's tough. Does it work? Yes. Am I freaked out every day about it? Yeah. But we make it work. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Holy shit. <laughs> Sorry. Lots to unpack there. No, You're no. my therapist for the day. No, I know. It's for those that think when you see a church like that, <laughs> you know, like, oh, let's make a studio. Like these are some factors because it's not just like an industrial building off in the distance that nobody's paying attention to. It's a church building's no matter what your religious views are, are a significant and important part of the landscape of, of many places. And a derelict church is not acceptable to a lot of communities for, for a good reason, too. So yes. if you see a church and you think, oh, I'd love to build a studio in there, these are some things to consider. Absolutely. I mean, I did a ton of due diligence on this building, and I still came up with some things that took quite a bit of time and, and energy and money to remedy. So there's always going to be something there that you're going to have to overcome. It's not easy. That said, I'm super grateful that we got that grant. I'm super grateful that the town was interested in the way that they were because it was a good investment. Mm -hmm. I just have to keep telling my jaded self that it was a good investment and I'm proud of it. A couple other thoughts, and we can go into detail this offline if you want, but if it were me in your position, I think I would consider everything we just talked about as possibilities for business. But at the same time, if I had the opportunity to have a space like that, how big is the live room? Is it pretty big? It's huge. Yeah. Is there an opportunity to create like community nights where like you show like kids movies or something and you invite the public in at a low cost and sell popcorn? That is totally an option. That was on my list of things that I really wanted to do was open up to live events, community events. And I have to say, just the trajectory of how this place has gone is so interesting because as I said, we really started operating right in the thick, in the beginning and the thick of COVID. And any thought that I had about community events went right out the window and it just became studio time, studio time, studio time. So diversifying in that way or offering snarky puppy style sessions where you've got 30 audience attendees in this live room, that could totally happen. And it has happened before my, my ownership, but it's definitely something I want to look into more. Damn. But I mean, really yeah. with this place, the way that it's been booked, again, I'm kind of just shocked. I, we're booked a lot. 
for recording sessions. And a lot of the sessions are are longer residential stays. So it does get a little tricky with what else can you do with the time that you have? If you've got a two-week lockout, what do you what do you do? And the answer is it can't do a lot unless you do it kind of old school. And it's like, yeah, we're going to tear it down every night, do something else, and then set it back up the next morning. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that factor, of yeah. course. Yeah. You'd have to like find the dead spots and then announce. Exactly. Oh, hey, we got (laughs) to, we're free this weekend. Everybody come over and pay five bucks to come and watch Finding Nemo and eat popcorn. I know it. There's a good lawn space and we're right on a very creepy cemetery. So maybe it could be good for a drive-in style thing, Mm, especially around Halloween. Then there's all the expenses that come with that. And, yeah. and fees of public performance of movies and such. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, that's true. That's true. For the audience, website is ghosthitrecording.com. It is. And then one other thing that I wanted to mention to you, Matt, is that speaking of diversification, I, I really do want to get more into the audio post work that I've been doing. And I'm going to be starting a separate company just for sound for different types of media, including film. And since my wife and I are so plugged into that world right now, it, it seemed to be the right time to sort of make a different entity for that. So we're starting a company called Hollow Mountain Sound and Score. The website for that is going to be up soon. Just forgive me with a couple of temp bits of copy here and there and some temp images, but hollowmountainsound.com is going to be the website for that. That's great. And just one last tidbit to throw at you, maybe consider space for podcasters in your community because- yes. That's so easy to do. A hundred percent. And that is on the website right now. When we hop off, I'll send you the URL and give you the the passcode. And by the time this interview comes up, I'm sure I'll have it live. But there's a whole section just for podcasts. And I've done a lot of audiobook work and would never not want to do that. I, I find it to be really fun. So yeah, definitely doing audiobooks, doing podcasting, doing commercial work, doing mm. all that kind of stuff. And that's going to be part of this company. Yeah. Wow. Well, great to meet you. And I know it's turned into a part psychiatrist session and part. That's that's why I show up for my WCA. <laughs> well, fantastic. I'll put all the links in the show notes and audience, be sure to, to check it out. And man, I wish you nothing but luck. And if I can be of any assistance in terms of bouncing ideas off of, you can always reach out to me for sure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. All right, Andrew, you take care. You too. Thanks, Matt. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Andrew O'Dell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you did enjoy the interview and you like the show in general, head on over to your podcast aggregator. Leave us a five-star review if you can. You know, I would love that. I would greatly appreciate it, and it really helps the show out. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdell in the Working Class Audio theme song. 
and Mr. Chuck Smith at the top of the show with that lovely voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.